So how do you get involved in gambling? Well, uh, when I was younger, John, a lot, of, um, a lot of friends of my parents used to come round and play cards on a Sunday night. They had a Sunday night card school. And um, now that I know, my father, he was a compulsive gambler as well. And my mum, she wasn't far off either. She loved gambling as well. And uh, so uh, I was introduced through this, th- this card game. My mum sometimes would let me play a hand while she went out to prepare the, uh, the evening uh, snacks for the players. And, uh, and I used to sit listening uh, to the radio. I was really um, taken in by the commentary, uh, uh, the, the patter of the commentator. And, uh, and so I would sit all Saturday sometimes and uh, look at the paper and uh, pick horses out and imagine that they were running for me. So how old were you at this time? Um, probably around about nine or ten, somewhere around about there. Yeah, my grandfather also was a horse trainer. And um, my father used to, um, he was a hairdresser and, and at the hairdresser's shops in those days, there was always lots of talks about sport and gambling and those sorts of things, yeah. So you were a kid, nine or ten years mm-hmm. old, listening to Sid Tonks or somebody. Yeah, someone like that. Dave Com- Clarkson. Yeah. Yeah. Commentating on the gallops from around the country. Yeah. But that's all f- fairly innocent and innocuous. Where did this develop? Well, uh, I'd go to the races with my mum and dad, and um, the thing to do was then was to pick up all the tickets on the ground that people had thrown away and try and sort through, and, and uh, hopefully someone had thrown away a, a winner or something like that, and you could cash it in and get the money. And So at, at about, probably at about... Um, Maybe 13, I, I started going to the races, 12 or 13, probably 12 actually when I look back now, I started going to the races and I'd go down and walk horses uh, after the race at the stables, got to know uh, trainers and, and, uh, and they'd give you half a crown for um, oh, two and six or 25 cents as it is now and uh, they'd give you that much money to walk, call their horse around after a race. And so if you did that four times, you had what is now a dollar. Back then it was 10 shillings, but it was a dollar. And then, then um, I started to, to, um, to ask some of the, the, the trainers if they thought that their horse would be worth putting a dollar on, and they'd say yay or nay. And so I'd get someone, because back in those days you had to be 21 to go and put money on in the tote, and so I'd ask someone, could they go and put a dollar on for me? And, uh, and so that's where, really where it started, and um, yeah, I can remember. I can remember really the f- the first bet that I had um, at one, and uh, and it was I can even remember the name of the horses. Um, and at one, and and it's really amazing that um, at Gamblers Anonymous that I'm involved in now, probably ninety percent or even more of the people that have come through said that the first time they've gambled, they've won. It's really interesting listening to you say this. I was going to ask you the question, were you successful as a kid gambling and you were successful in your first bet? You can remember the name of the horse yes, and where you yeah, were. Yeah. I can remember the name of the horse I first bought a ticket on. This was at the Porongia races. Oh, yeah, at the Porongia. Where yeah. they don't even have a totalizer, yeah. they have an equalizer. Yeah, so you spend yeah. the money and they give you a ticket, ticket for, that's right. for whatever it is. Yes. And the horse that I had a dollar on won. Yeah. And I don't know how 
seven years old, that was it. Yeah. You start yeah. to figure out that you can give them a dollar and get $5.60 back yes. or more. Yeah. It sets you on a new path. Yeah. Yeah. So you're 13. Yes. And the horse wins. Yeah. And how long before you are, okay, as a teenager, a gambler? Is that instant? Yeah, instantaneous for me, John. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I started to live and breathe horses. But if the home life hadn't been enough, you know, I, I attended every race meeting that I could. Um, I, um, I stole to, to get money to gamble. So once you started gambling, how quickly did you get from gambling to stealing to support your gambling habit? Not long after. Yeah. Uh, it, it got to the stage where I probably, when I went to work, and I may have jumped a bit ahead here, but um, I probably by the time I was 20, I'd probably had maybe 20 jobs. And, and what happened was is that I'd work at the wool stores and you'd only have to give an hour's notice. And night trots had started then. And so that uh, they'd pay you straight away and you go to the night trots and you'd lose your money. And that would happen nine times out of ten. And, uh, and the next day I'd start a new job at another wool store. That's how easy jobs were to get. Uh, but quite often, um, you know, I'd go around the back of hotels, steal bottles back in those days. You used to get sixpence for a large Coke bottle and threepence for a, for a small Coke bottle. And you'd, I'd take my duffel bag in, fill it up, and then go to a dairy and, and cash up. Um, I, I can often remember back in those days, they used to deliver milk and, and bread and cream and uh, I'd go along the road, it'd be dark, and I'd be going into people's milk boxes and taking the money out, um, and, uh, and that, all, that all financed your gambling. And so that was sort of petty crime. Yeah. And then when I started work, I really, um, I ended up going into the snooker rooms and... Uh, and I wasn't much good at snooker, and there was always gambling card games going on down there. Um, there'd be a bookie down there who would take bets, and so then I started stealing um, product from the company that I worked for. And that was, you know, that was really sad. And one day I got a knock on the door, and I was in bed, and my mum answered the door, and it was a policeman. And and um, about how old were you at the time? Uh, seventeen, sixteen or seventeen. So at the age of sixteen. You were actually quitting jobs so you could go to the races at night. And then at the age of 16 or 17, you were stealing from your employer to support your gambling habits. Yeah. And, and so what happened? Well, they, uh, the company decided that they, probably the worst thing that happened, the company decided that they wouldn't press charges. And, um, and they even allowed me to work on and, until I, I, I said that I'd so, s- stolen about 60 Pounds were the stuff it was back then. And so then I repaid that. They took that out of my pay. And then I remember the section manager, who was a really nice guy, said to me, oh, look, David, you probably haven't got much future here. You know, it might be best that you went and, and got another job. And so I went on to another job, stole off them. It just kept on repeating and repeating. Now, you said the worst thing was that they didn't press charges. Well, maybe if at that stage, if I'd been charged, maybe I would have got a fright 
and um, maybe that would have stopped me, but probably not in hindsight uh, because of it, it, being caught didn't stop me gambling. You know, I still carried on. So what about people who were not or are not problem gamblers? What about them? I, w- I went into the TAB one time when, um, when I'd stopped gambling, when God had healed me from my gambling addiction. And I, I wanted to go in there and put some signs up from Gamblers Anonymous. And, and um, the manager of the TAB, oh, no, you can't put any of those signs up in here. And yeah, he said, there isn't many compulsive gamblers come in here. And I said, oh, how do you know? And he said, oh, because we only have an odd guy that comes in and puts 100 on all those people that are putting $2 each way or $5 each way or a dollar each way, uh, the recreational, so-called re- recreational gamblers, they're not compulsive. But you go in in the morning and you see them there and they might only have an X amount of, of dollars and, and it might only be 10, they might only have $20, but they're still compulsive gamblers because they gamble till that's gone. But you say the recreational gamblers... Uh, I had an accountant who s- told me with great glee that he he was a, a a recreational gambler, and there are some people that are. But he he would go with his wife if he was on holiday. He'd be away somewhere, maybe in Australia, and go to a casino over there. And he, they'd say, "Right, we're going to gamble for ten minutes. We've got fifty dollars. If we win, we'll go and have a meal. If not, well, we'll go and have a meal anyhow, and and we'll have to pay for it." And so that that I guess that's their recreational. Um, pleasure, I suppose, but <clears throat> I haven't met many of those, John. You know, I haven't. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, I guess they're around somewhere, but you know, there's an old story that compulsive gamblers don't win. But I, I've met compulsive gamblers who do win, but all their time is spent gambling. They're either pouring over a race book, or they're in. They've got some system where they think they can win in the casino. And, and there are some, when I was a bookie, there were, there were people that used to bet with me that won. And it drove me mad. And you, in the end, you'd want to sack them because you couldn't beat them. So let's come back to this. What is gambling doing by now to your life? It's just taken over my life. I'm, I'm a slave to it, John. You, you don't, you don't realise that, of course, but you are a slave to your gambling addiction. And um, it, it's affecting my life in all sorts of ways. You, when you're addicted, when you have an addiction, you, uh, opportunities in life slip by because you don't recognise them. Uh, I remember I, at about 18 or 19, I got this really good job at a market in, in uh, Christchurch, but uh, I didn't realise how good it was. Uh, and um, because of my gambling addiction, I'd be playing cards halfway into the night or all night and supposed to start there at four o'clock in the morning and I'd arrive at 10, uh, 10 past and then 20 past and then I passed and then I lost my job, this really good job. And so it, it interferes in, in, in your life in many, many different ways. And relationships at, at that stage, at um, 21, I... No, at 19, I got married, and, um, and, and that was a tragedy. I didn't know how to be a father. I didn't know how to be a husband, and I spent all my money gambling. And so 
my um, first son, um, his bassinet was a drawer, and he he used to sleep in a drawer because I I had no money to buy bassinet for him, and so um, you know uh, that marriage didn't last very long. It was um, you know very dysfunctional. How much of that was due to gambling? All of it. All of it. There weren't any other issues. It was all gambling. And, uh, you know, uh, for food, I'd go from store to store. They used to have little dairies um, on just about on every corner in in most cities. And so you could go in and uh, you're allowed to get one pound tens worth of credit back yep. in those days, which was which was a, a pretty good amount. Sure. And so um, you'd, you'd go in and book it up, and then uh, I'd just keep on travelling around in the vicinity that I was in and, and just kept on booking up things and, and never paying. How low did gambling take you? The lowest point. Probably uh, when I was about 27, I was actually managing a produce department in a supermarket here in Hamilton. And uh, how I kept that job for so long, I don't know, but I guess God had given me a talent in that area. And um, and then at 27, um, my marriage ended. Uh, I lost my job and I lost my house. Um, my wife had... had paid me out um, the money that I guess had accumulated after about six years in it. And uh, on the Friday, I remember she she paid me out. Um, I just forget how much it was, but I went to the Tauranga races the next day and lost it all. So that that was a pretty low point, but um, things went even lower after that. got really bad when uh, I was 27, and uh, what was I going to do? You know, I had no income, so at that stage I turned to crime and uh, never worked for the next 13 years, just lived off the proceeds of crime to support my gambling addiction and got into all sorts of things that uh, were just getting worse and worse. Um, I became, a, I became at about, um, at that stage... I remembered my father had, back in the old barber shop, used to be a, a small-time bookmaker, and um, and in New Zealand, of course, it's illegal. But uh, I decided, okay, um, there must be money in that, and so um, I became a um, a bookie here in New Zealand, um, and uh, that turned into a um, a really huge business. I had people. Uh, ringing in, I had a, an office here at one stage where I had a guy working for me, and um, we had three phones going. I'd go up there as well at times, and um, turned over enormous amounts of money. And but it, it didn't matter because no matter how much I won, I just gambled it away. And um, and I thought I was smarter. I thought I was smarter than all all the other gamblers. Now that's a dark world. You must have seen some interesting things. Yes, um, probably. You know, once again, I didn't. 
I didn't, at that stage, I didn't realise that people had gambling addictions. I just used to go around every Friday and collect and pay out money. And I remember there was a guy um, that used to be the manager of one of the finance companies here. And um, he uh, was introduced to me by another guy. This is how, how you couldn't advertise for customers, so it was word of mouth. And, and um, because I'd I built up a, a good reputation of, of paying and, uh, and there wasn't any problem with getting paid, and so this, this guy came along and he, he introduced me to this finance manager and... Um, this was very early on in, in, in my bookmaking career. And um, he said, look, I can't be seen with you. And he said, what I'll do is I'll, uh, you tell me your telephone account number and I'll give you mine. And if I win, you just put the money in my telephone account. And if I lose, I'll put it in yours. And back in those days, that's how we used to put money in. And you'd pay if somebody was betting with you from Invercargill, you would put it in their telephone account and they'd put it in mine if I lost. Anyhow, this guy carried on. Um, after a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, he'd uh, lost 27000 and um, he he um, he said the money will be in your account on uh, Friday. So um, I'd been laying bets off with another bookmaker because I really didn't have that much money at that time to pay this guy out if he had won lots. So anyhow, out of it, I had to send 20000 away to another bookmaker. And um, so I'd won 7000 And um, when he started again the next Saturday, I thought, OK, um, I'll, I won't lay any of these bets off. I'll be able to pay him until if he wins the 7000 Well, then I'll have to lay them off again. And um, on that particular week, he lost um, 48000 and so um, at that stage, I, I also got into a little fruit shop over in uh, Chartwell Square. And uh, anyhow, he said, I've got a bit of good news. And he rang me up on the Wednesday and asked me how, how, how much did he owe. And he said, oh, I've just got promotion to becoming general manager in, in Wellington. And, uh, and so <laughs> I was really pleased. <laughs> anyhow... Um, on the Thursday, there was uh, while I was over in the shop, um, this guy walked in and he said, I'm detective such and such, and uh, I believe that uh, you're a bookmaker and um, you've been involved uh, with this guy and um, he's been stealing money from the finance company and uh, he's just walked out and handed himself in. So he ended up going to jail for, for quite some time. You know, that was... That was a horrible thing, and he, and I never realised until now that you know till I stopped gambling that he was a compulsive gambler. But um, yeah, so that was one of the incidences. Um, so yeah, that was you know seeing someone's life destroyed, his wife left him, his, he lost his job, and he ended up in jail. So did it bother you at the time? No, no, not really, because the police didn't press any charges against me. Um, at, at that stage, they they uh, they didn't do that. But um, over the years, I appeared in court on, on numerous occasions uh, over gambling-related uh, offences. I got arrested probably five or six, might be more times for bookmaking. Police would kick the door in and, and um, burst in looking for evidences. So why didn't you quit? Were you making too much money? Too much money. Yeah, if, you know, for a compulsive gambler, 
you know, here it was, um, you know, I had a, I had a flash car, I lived wherever I wanted to, if I ever wanted to hop on a plane, I could hop on a plane and fly off wherever I wanted to, and I just guessed I thought that I was living the life of Jack the Lad, but all the time, of course, not knowing that I was a slave to the devil. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV for the first time. They're watching their favorite It Is Written episodes, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free on Roku and Apple TV or visit itiswritten.tv. At some stage, it occurred to you that you were a slave. Well, tell me how that unfolded. At this stage, I'd, I'd met my wife, and my wife. Well, we weren't. We were living in a in a relationship, and uh, I remember one time that uh, on Christmas Christmas Day, the uh, which is a horrible day because there's no gambling back then on Christmas Day. And um, some of the, the um, Asian people who I used to associate rang up and said, what's happening? And I said, oh, there's not much happening. And they said, oh, could we come around to your place and have a game of cards? And I said, oh, that's a great idea. And so um, I said to Debbie, um, we had a little boy then, and I said to her, look, you've, you've got to take Michael out because um, there's a card game going to be going on here on Christmas Day, this is, and I don't want to be disturbed. We won't want to be disturbed. And so she had to leave the house, and then when she came came back hours later, she said, that's it, I've had enough. Christmas Day. Yeah, Christmas Day. She said, "Uh, I'm, I'm moving out. And though we, we, we saw each other, st- we still saw each other, we were an item, I guess. Um, she, she didn't, you know, she hated gambling. She hated it. And uh, then uh, I thought it was great because all of a sudden I didn't have any, you know, there was no responsibility and, uh, and that was sort of, you know, that was gone. And... Uh, n- I mean, compulsive gamblers are very selfish people. You know, it's about self. That's what it is. 
and and being incredibly selfish. So I thought, oh, it's sort of like freedom. And there's no partner and there's no child. And not that I really spent that much time with them anyhow, John. It was horrible. Uh, once again, I didn't know how to be a husband or a father. But, um, you know, when I look back on that, I think, wow, God was, was, was watching over her more than me at that stage. Because not long after that, four guys broke in to my house in the middle of the night, stuck a bayonet in my throat and said, we're going to kill you if you don't tell us where your money is. So did you tell them? No, I said, no, there's no money here. You've come the wrong day. <laughs> I said, collection day's Friday. <laughs> Thursday, Thursday night's no good. So somebody's got a bayonet at your throat and you lied. Yeah, still lied, yeah. There was, um, there was actually money in the glove box in my car and they went out and searched it and got it and um, took off. So that was, that was a real blessing because Debbie wasn't there and I'd hate to think what would have happened. Um, these were four pretty notorious um, gangster-type guys, so what would have happened, I don't know. So she moved out and then, once again, you're thinking on your feet all the time and I thought the best thing I can say is, let's get married. I thought she'd be, that'd be really good, you know, she'd, she'd like that. And she was pretty staunch. She said, no, I'm not going to marry you. No, no, I don't, want, I don't want this gambling in my life. But then I kept on, and finally she said, okay, look, here's the go. You know, we'll get married, but there's to be no gambling in the house. I don't want it on TV. I don't want people ringing up, putting bets on. I don't want card games going on here. And um, because you're, once again, because you're a compulsive liar when you're a compulsive gambler, that's one of the traits that go with it. I said, yeah, yeah, no, no, none of that will happen. Full well, knowing that once we were married and I was back in there, that things would just carry on and then we were due to get married on the Saturday and uh, on Thursday morning two days before we were due to get married I woke up and I had this amazing feeling and um, Debbie said what's up and, she says, and I'd stayed the night round at her place and uh, I said I don't know I've just got this unusual feeling that, like I don't want to gamble today so that day, you had no urge to gamble. No, there was no urge. And, and, uh, and, uh, and then from that day to this, and that's uh, 30 years ago now, I've never had any desire to gamble. It was, a, it was, a, it was just a straight-out miracle. And I'd never asked God to, to heal me. Um, you know, I'd, I was really full-on in the life that I was living. So what was this? How could, how could this have happened? Was someone praying? After we got married, um, and Debbie didn't say anything on, that, on that, that morning when I woke up. And, um, and then about a couple of weeks later, she said to me, oh, I prayed. And I said, what? What do you know about prayer? Because she liked going to nightclubs and parties and things like that, you know. And I said, what did you say? And she said, Oh, if there's a God out there, you know, I, I, I really don't want to marry David as a gambler. And um, if, I've tried to change him, but I, I can't. He doesn't listen to me. And if, if you could do that, I'd be really grateful. And so this was from someone who didn't really know anything about God, never been to a church at hardly at all. You know, amazing, just an amazing miracle. Yeah. I still look back every day, you know, I'm so grateful that she prayed that prayer. How did you get from that prayer to being a Christian? In a particular time in my first marriage, uh, 
I had ultimatums given to me. And uh, so um, I started coming to the Adventist church. Oh, what happened was is that we had uh, separated and um, I went and lived with this guy who turned out to be a Seventh-day Adventist guy. And, um, and he had invited me to stay at his place when we were separated. And then one night he said to me, would you like to look at the Bible? And I said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I thought, oh, no. But because my, I sort of had some manners I th- that my mum, my poor mum had put into me, I said, oh, okay then. And uh, anyhow, he, he opened up the Bible and started showing me these, these amazing things. And at that time, I thought, wow, that's amazing. So I thought I was saved uh, at that stage when I was going to the Catholic Church. I'd be going to heaven. And then I started coming to the Adventist Church and I thought, oh, well, uh, I'm going to go to heaven if I go to the Adventist Church. And I really didn't understand. I, I was amazed by what he showed me in the Bible, but I really didn't understand the love of Jesus. And um, it wasn't long before I was out again. And uh, But I'd had that experience in the Adventist Church and... You know, I, when God had done this amazing healing in my life, I, me and Debbie started coming along to the Adventist Church here in Hamilton. And it was just, you know, I just embraced Jesus for what he'd done for me in my life. I, I guess I had this an, an, an epiphany, John, you know, that, wow, this God is just totally amazing that he would do that. Did you ever think of going back to gambling? No, no, no going back to gambling. People just couldn't believe it. In fact, all over New Zealand, people just couldn't believe it that, that um, you know, that yeah, this David Slack had, had, had this amazing change of, of life. So gambling had been this really big part of your life and now it's just gone. So what did you do? I didn't know what I was going to do, John. I didn't know... You know, I, I, at that stage, I was totally reliant on God. I had no idea what I was going to do. And uh, because I was going to the markets, uh, a, um, and at that stage, 1987, the share market had just collapsed. And uh, there were a lot of people in debt. And I, I, had, I was buying for a couple of Asian guys. I still were buying for them, though I wasn't gambling with them. And I was earning a really a minimal amount of money. But man, were we really happy, you know, um, Sometimes we, we had Weepix and rice risotto. We had that for ages and ages. That's what we could afford. And, um, and then I was out at the market this day, and the guy, was a, the guy at the manager of the market was a Christian, and this guy came in and said, oh, look, I'm looking for someone to buy for my brother-in-law's shop who's fled New Zealand and because he owes so much money. And he said to me, sell the shop and at least pay the market the money that I owe them, and that'll be the debt cleared. And so I started buying for this guy's business, and it was only turning over $750 a week, so it wasn't really making any profit. And then his wife, I had a breakdown. She got diagnosed with um, breast cancer and had a breakdown. And so um, he said to me, can't you buy the shop? And I said, no, I haven't got any money. And, and so he, he tried to sell it. Another couple of weeks went by, and he said, look, can't you just buy the shop? My wife's very sick, and uh, I, I, I can't spend any time in it. So I said, how much do you owe? How much, how much do you owe? And he said, my brother owes 7000 And it had coolers and fixtures and fittings. And 
so that was a really good deal. So I went back to the market and I said, look, I'll, if you allow me to pay you $140 a week, um, I'll take the shop over. And so Roger said, yeah, okay, and we'll give you a go. And so that happened and, um, and the shop just started to, to just boom. Tell me a little bit about that because he became very successful. It's so interesting. Eh? You spent all these years gambling, yes. lost everything, yes. gave it up yes. and took on a little business and yes. then things really amazing. went upwards. Yeah, things amazing. In that time, there's an interesting thing that I, um, I never, I forgot to tell you, but when God healed me, I thought, I want to help other people because I, I knew so many compulsive gamblers and I knew that there, there, there were thousands of them in Hamilton because this is a gambling town. And uh, anyhow, I rang up the guy. I found the Gambler's Anonymous number and I rang him up and he said, oh, no, I had the last meeting last week. Nobody's been coming, so I've just closed it down. And I was, I was really quite deflated once again. I was, I was quite deflated and I thought, oh, wow. But for two years, God needed to sort me out in his wisdom. You know, I wanted to do this, but God knew I wasn't ready for that. So in those two years, uh, the shop started to flourish and um, the turnover started to, to go up and up and up and, and the business became very successful. And then I was doing a delivery one day, once again, to another one of my Asian friends that I used to gamble with. Uh, we were still doing business and... Uh, this guy came up to me and said, a young fellow he was, and he said to me, um, you're David Slack, aren't you? And I said, yes, that's right. And he said, uh, I used to idolise you in the TAB. And I said, well, what you saw wasn't real, you know. And he said, no, no, I used to see you putting enormous amounts of money on horses and I just wanted to be like you. And I said, nah, that life's no good. And he said, oh, look, can you help me? Uh, my friend and I have got into some trouble and um, I... I've, I've got to get out of this life that I'm, I'm leading. And so the next, I, I, rang a, I actually rang a, a bookie mate of mine down in Christchurch who about two or three months beforehand had told me that he had one of his punters going to Gamblers Anonymous and we sort of laughed at it, you know. We said, oh, he'll be back soon, you know, stupid meetings. And, uh, and anyhow, I remember that he told me this and so I, I rang him up and said, can you give me a Paul's number? And so... I rang him up and he told me that there was a Gamblers Anonymous meeting in Auckland. And so the next week we went to Gamblers Anonymous and that was two years later. And that's how we started here in, in Hamilton. I want to ask you about Gamblers Anonymous yes. in just a moment. Yes. First, I want to ask you about, about gambling and the various forms of gambling mm-hmm. and the dangers they pose. Because in the last, since you and I used to go to the racetrack mm-hmm. and gamble on horses, mm-hmm. gambling's just everywhere. It's insidious, mm-hmm. lots mm-hmm. of different forms of mm-hmm. gambling. Sure. What have you... What have you seen the well, damage done? The damage done, uh, oh, look, I've, since the time I've been involved in Gamblers Anonymous and going to the prison, I've just, you know, just seen and witnessed and heard just horrific stories. I had a, I had a lady deliver a guy here one day. It was her husband, and she said, um, this is his last chance. Uh, she said, uh, Three weeks ago, I put a gun on the beard. She said, I really wanted him to kill himself. And, and she said, next week, I put bullets with it. And then nothing happened. And she said, and now I've delivered him here. And I never want to see him again. 
This is his last chance. And uh, they're happily married today. That's a, that's a, that's a great story. That's, that's a great story. story. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So, casinos, what can you tell us about casinos? Well, I had a, I had a friend who was a heroin addict. My, my best friend was a heroin addict. and He actually used to work for me answering the phones. And, um, you know, the poker machines are the, the, the heroin. You compare them, they're, they're the heroin addiction of the gambling industry. Poker machines. Why? They're geared to suck your money out. You know, that's, that's what they are. You know, they play nice music. And um, it's not uncommon to hear people coming to Gamblers Anonymous and saying, I, I, I had an affair with the poker machine. You know, some days it treated me okay. It was an abusive relationship, but I couldn't help myself. You know, I went back. Sometimes it took all my money. Um, and, you know, that... That's how it was, you know. W- women, uh, see, when when you and I were involved in the in the gambling industry, women very rarely got involved in gambling. You know, you'd walk into the TAB men's club, uh, men's club. You wouldn't you wouldn't see anyone there. You know, I I never saw. I don't think I saw any woman ever in a pool room. True. Yeah, never never saw never saw a woman there. But now, um, you know, the, you go into a casino. And the vast majority of people playing poker machines, women, you go into these seedy poker machine bars and, and they're mostly women playing there. Why do you think that is? Well, I asked a lady that one day, John, and she said, you know, being a housewife is pretty mundane. And uh, doing the washing and the ironing and the cooking and looking after the children and, and um, cleaning the toilet and putting the rubbish out and... All these other things that this lady said, and she said, I'd drop the kids off and I'd go to the, to the uh, poker machine bar, and as long as I had money, all that went. I wasn't thinking about the mundane things in life. There was just me and, and my lover, the poker machine. Now, you said that when you put that first 10 shillings on a horse way back then, you won. First time out, you won. Do you see that today with people you interact with who have gambling problems? Does that happen much? John, constantly. It's, once again, uh, it's 90% of the people that come to Gamblers Anonymous that, go, that, that share with me, you know, how the first time they got involved with the poker machine, they won. And it's, you know, it's like, you know, the devil's able to do all sorts of things and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for him to manipulate a poker machine. Share a story with me about that. What have you seen? Um, a young lady who um, a few years back came to, to Gamblers Anonymous and shared her story. She'd been brought up in a very well-to-do home, been to university, graduated with honours in accountancy, got picked up by one of the head um, accountancy firms here in Hamilton. And this is her story. She said, I'd never been seen dead in one of those seedy poker machine bars, but her and her boyfriend went for uh, dinner at the casino one night and they thought because they'd never been into the casino, they'd go and just have a look. And, and so they went in and she they didn't see anything they liked there, of course. When you're, when you're not a gambler, there's nothing in the casino that appeals to you. So anyhow, she happened to have, her and her boyfriend had a $2 coin each and he put his $2 coin in. I guess they just did that to say, oh, yeah, we've been in there. And we put some money in the poker machine. He pressed the button, nothing happened, and she put her $2 in and pressed the button, and 
hey presto, the lights started flashing and she didn't even know what had happened. And uh, an attendant came and he said, oh, congratulations, you've just won a $1,400 jackpot. And she said, oh, I thought I'd broken the machine when all the lights started to flash on. And um, so she said, what happens next? And he said, what do you want to happen? And she said, can I have the money? And he said, yeah. And so off they went rejoicing and that she was trapped. Unbeknown to her, she was trapped at that stage. And uh, she went in the next night with another $2 coin and put it in. And lo and behold, the same thing happened. The lights started flashing and um, she won $1,600, another jackpot $1,600. And sadly, she arrived at Gamblers Anonymous six months later and was $40,000 in credit card debt, lost all her money and was in debt. People like her, do they, do they get out? Do they get out of gambling? They do if they follow the program. That's, that's the only hope. There is no other hope. Uh, you know, I, you can give it the, the beer knuckle and clinch, clench your teeth and, and pull up your socks and uh, say, yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm never going to be in this again. But uh, sadly, you've only got to go on some of the uh, addiction sites on, uh, on the internet. And um, I just, my heart just goes out to these people who, who say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, not, I'm never going to gamble again. Oh, it's just been a horrific experience for me. And, and they have no program to follow. And then you see them. A couple of months later, they're back on there saying, oh, I went down, lost all my money uh, on the pokies again, and, and uh, I'm back to s- square one. And, and it's the struggle that people go through on their own. You can't do this on your own. This is Pearl. When Pearl heard about the Eyes for India initiative, she decided she was going to take matters into her own hands. When Pearl's birthday came around, she invited all of her friends over for a birthday party, and the theme of the party was Eyes for India. She told her friends about the thousands of people in India who couldn't see, and how this critical eye surgery could change their lives. Instead of gifts, Pearl asked that her friends bring donations for this important project. Because of Pearl's influence, seven people are now able to see. Her story inspired our brand new mission kit, It's a box that has everything you need to fundraise your own project for Eyes for India. Whether it's at the front desk of your business, part of your small group, or a special church project, this kit is guaranteed to change lives. We can't wait to hear about all the creative ways you find to make this resource come to life, just like Pearl. What does the Bible say about astrology? Why do bad things happen to good people? What color is Jesus? If you have a question, we'd love to find an answer for you from the Bible. Line up online from It Is Written TV. Do you think gambling or some forms of gambling should be made illegal? No, not really, John. Look, it's a freedom of choice thing. It's, you know, it's like God, you know, it's, it's a, he doesn't take away the freedom of choice from people, but, um, you know, you, you can ban certain types of gambling. I mean, they had prohibition in America. Sure. And, and 
what happened to alcohol. It thrived. And it would be the same here, you know, if you, if you started banning different forms of gambling. Uh, you know, there would be seedy places start up. And uh, I'd like to see it really um, a more awareness in, in, in the TABs and the casinos of the dangers of gambling. But for, if, if I'd been, you know, if I'd walked into a TAB as a compulsive gambler when I was younger, I wouldn't have even looked at the signs. So it's really education before you get to that stage. You know, um, children, you know, eight, ten, should be educated in, in the fact that, th- th- that this is a, a terrible, uh, can, can be a terrible sickness if you get involved in it. So once upon a time, you were completely immersed in gambling. That was your life. And now, by a miracle of God, you're completely delivered. Completely delivered. You don't want to go back. You're done. You don't have any desire. I hate it. It's it's just horrible. You know, not only can I look back on my own life and and see what it did to my father, my mother, um, my first marriage, how it affected my two children from that marriage, um, even in the relationship that I got into, uh, how, you know, it was a, that was a nightmare while, while I was gambling. Um, and, yeah, I have no, I have no, no desire at all to, to be involved in that. And, I, and, you know, the wonderful part of Gamblers Anonymous, if I ever, if I ever thought oh, I'll go back and gamble again, I hear here every Tuesday night, you know, people saying, tragedy, tragedy, you know, we had a guy come last week, lovely young man, and um, he, he, he was really struggling. You know, he was a start again, stop, start, stop. And, um, and he came last Tuesday night and said, oh, I need help. Uh, I don't want to be living this life anymore. So we could say, well, you've done great. And that sentiment, I think, is not a bad sentiment. You've mm-hmm. done so good overcoming this gambling. I didn't overcome it, John. It wasn't you. No, no. This I can't was, take any credit for this. This was God at work. Yeah, hard at work. Hard at work. So what do you say to somebody who's struggling with gambling and has heard your story? Number one, there's hope. You know, when, I, when people ask me, what's the best thing that's happened to you since, since you stopped gambling? I say, uh, freedom. I'm a slave no longer. The, the wonderful part about it is, is uh, uh, you know, there's, I remember coming to church here and, and uh, there was a couple here who I didn't know at the time. Uh, their son was in, in um, Waikiria prison. And, and uh, they said to me, oh, well, you, 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 you just don't know how good it is to see you here because if there's hope for you, there's hope for anybody. <laughs> And, uh, I, you know, I, somebody said to me when I told them that story, they said, didn't you feel stink? They said that. And I said, no, no, it was the best thing they could ever say to me because I then found out what the story was behind it. But look, God, you know, I've seen, I've seen God working in the prisons, John. You know, it's wonderful that I can, I can go to um, God's taking me to, to prisons and I've seen God in action in prisons. So for years, you've been helping people who were stuck in gambling 
couldn't get out. Now you're dealing with people, ministering to people who are in prison. So how do you get involved in prison ministry? You know, about five years ago, um, God put it in my, my heart to go to Spring Hill Prison. And, um, and you know, I, I, what, do you, what do you talk to, to, to people about that you'd never met before who are in prison? And I remember the first time I went, the, the lady was supposed to have organised um, a programs room and, um, and to the people that we wanted to come along were going to come along. And anyhow, when I arrived there, she said, oh, look, I haven't organised that yet. Um, I'll send you down. I'll take you down to one of the, the pods and, um, and you just yell out. And, uh, and, and just tell people what you're doing. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. And she said, no, no, no. And, and just do that. And so I've got no idea. And I'm starting to freak out, John. You know, I'm thinking, oh, no. But then I just remembered God in prayer, you see. And so as we're walking up, I'm praying, Holy Spirit, I need you here in my life. I don't know what to say to these guys. So when I went in, uh, and I and I looked in, and it was like a a community within a community. And when I opened the doors, went through a few doors, and here opened up, to, and there was a whole lot of guys milling around and playing basketball. And I noticed there was a card game going on at one of the tables, and and so I just said, "Hey guys, look, I'm I'm from Gamblers Anonymous, and I'm going to be starting running meetings here next week. And if you'd like to come along, I'd like I'd love to see you." And the next week, about Six guys came, and uh, and they told me later on they came so that they could get out of where they were. There was something different, and they thought, "Oh, we'll go along and see this old fella and see what he's got to say and give him a hard time." And so we got to more, more and more and more and more. Um, we became closer and and we became friends. I mean, that's what Jesus did. You know, and so I could only model it on, on what Jesus did. He made friends with people and, and then set them free. Right. And so these guys, uh, the more we, we got to know each other, um, you know, the, the relationship just became better, better and better. And I was able to open up and talk about God freely with them. And, uh, and it gave them hope. You know, that's what it gives. That's, you know, that... God gives a hope and a future. And when you're, in, when you're a gambler, there is no hope and there is no future. That's, that's how it is. And so, yeah, so for the last um, five years, I've, I've seen God do amazing things in, uh, in people's lives in prison. Give me an example of that. Ah, we've got uh, a young guy who uh, I met by divine appointment. That's, that's, that's what I call him. And uh, he'd been brought up as a Christian and uh, he, he was in prison for, uh, he'd had a prison sentence of about 18 years. And he had shared with me that uh, he had been, and he wasn't coming to the meetings, but there was a football game going on uh, in the middle of the, the, the prison. And I saw this guy and I went up to him and I started talking to him. And, um, and anyhow, he was telling me the experience that he had, that he had, pulled himself up on the bars, he'd been in prison for about, I don't know, at this stage, maybe 10 years, and wanted to see what the outside world was. And all he could see was 
strips of grass. That's, that's all he could see. And he said, oh, I got down on my knees and I started calling out to God. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And, um, and so he told me a bit more. And, and then he said, oh, I'm an unusual Christian. And I said, how's that? And he said, oh, you, you wouldn't understand. And I said, oh, tell me. He said, oh, oh I was brought up as a Seventh-day Adventist. And I said, you're not going to believe this. So am I. And anyhow, we've become firm friends. And I've seen God change his life. And all he wants to do now when he gets, when he gets out of prison is to tell young people about Jesus and um, not to go down the same road that he went. So in prison ministry, you work with guys who accept Jesus and it's real and they give their lives to Christ and it's real and they leave the prison, fully paid up card-carrying Christians, committed to Jesus, and then sometime later, they're back. So why is that? Okay, the, the biggest thing that we talk about is, is temptation because no matter who you are or where you are for that matter, you're, you're going to be tempted. Yep. And uh, so how do you deal with temptation? And it's the same for all of us, John. How do we deal with temptation? And the program tells us that if you surrender your life, step three of the, of the recovery program says if you sur- surrender your life into the, the hands of Jesus, that he will enable you to do that. And so... I don't know about you, but, but me, I, I know that uh, there are things in my life that I can't change. And so that makes me needy. And I share this with the guys. It makes me needy. And they sort of look at me and think, needy? And I, said, I say, yeah, I need Jesus in my life. He promises to give me victory over temptation. You know, he, he says, hey, David, I'll take you by your right hand and I'll fight your battles for you. So why do you do it, David? Why are you involved in prison ministry today? It's one, number one, it's really exciting. It's, uh, it, it is, it's, it's really, really exciting. And, and the other thing is, is that uh, not everybody has uh, experiences in life that w- would enable them to be able to go and do that, John. But uh, it was wonderful that God um, really enabled me to go there and use my past life to be able to help other people. That's, that's the exciting part about it. Is it a little bit redemptive for you? It, it, it keeps me grounded. You know, it's, uh, I, I tell you, it, it's, it's, it's really amazing. These, these guys, you know, who are hardened um, hardened criminals. And, um, but I've never met a bad person there. I guess there must be somewhere in the prison. There must be bad people. Aren't they in prison because they're bad? No, they're there because they've made wrong choices. Sure, big, big differences. Yeah, it is, it is. And, uh, you know, when I, when I first went there and, and after I got to, to know the guys a bit, we started talking about love. And all of them said... We don't know what love is. Not one of them said, oh, yeah, I know what love is. They, they knew. Um, then they started sharing with me about how their childhood was and how they were brought up, and, and some of them in, in really total dysfunctional um, situations. 
And, um, and, and once again, when you start talking about the love of Jesus to them, you know, we, we, what's that? What's love? And so patiently and with the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Um, and as I said, I really don't know what to, t- to talk about them, but God gives you the, the, the words. He really puts words in your mouth. Sometimes I walk out of there and I think, man, where did that come from? And it's just so good to see God in action in there. So you work a lot with getting people off gambling. How does, I imagine there are many similar principles, how does a person manage to get out of prison and stay successfully mm-hmm. out of prison? Mm-hmm. Once again, John, only by, by following the recovery program, I... You know, that's, that's the most successful way. And, and embracing Jesus, that's, that's really the key to it, the, the change of life. Um, there really is no other way. There was no other way for me. I was just going to continue on and, as I was in my gambling career. And, and Jesus changed my life. And so it's the same. It can happen for anyone. You know, it, it, that offer from God, this loving God, he never gives up on us. You know, it's, it's just so good. And you can take that, you know, you can take that, that hope in there. And, and uh, I'm seeing a few guys at the moment who are just stunned by, by this God who loves. And, uh, and they're wanting to know more. You know, that's, that's really exciting. That's just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Hey, David, thanks very much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking your time to talk. It's been just great. Ah, oh, it's been wonderful, John. Yeah, any time. It's, it's I appreciate tremendous. It yeah, Thanks. Yeah, thank you.